Hello and welcome to England Unmasked, the podcast dedicated exclusively to England that will help you through the Euros, which the three Lions will hope to win on July the 11th under the Wembley Arch. I'm Dom Smith and I'm alone today. No Luke Edwards for this episode, I'm afraid, but I thought I'd get in touch with one of the country's most famous sports writers, Paul Haywood, to preview England in a major tournament final at Wembley on Sunday evening. Okay, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined now by the highly esteemed sports writer and author Paul Haywood, who is who's currently writing an 150-year biography of the England men's team. Paul, thank you very much for joining me. That's a pleasure, Don. Now, I'm going to start with this. I'm, I'm sure that you've uh, already written large sections of your book. Are you now going to have to go through and uh, redraft a lot of it? Yeah, I have written a large uh, proportion of it. And I think England just reaching the final changes the, the sort of tone and the mood, really, over not just over the last five years, but over decades. Because until now, the 1966 final and triumph was an outlier. It was the only final England had reached since 1950. So that's, you know, 71 years. Now we have another final. Um, That's not to say that England will beat Italy, but nevertheless, a a breakthrough has been made. And 1966 is no longer the sort of only haven, if you like, oasis in the story. And there is there is a lot more now to um, hang it on. There's, a, there's an a element of uh, sort of rebirth and redemption about these Gareth Southgate years and about the fact that England have reached the European Championship final. I want to ask you about the uh, years of hurt. Um, I'm writing a piece at the moment and I'm not quite sure. It, you know, it dawned on me when I was planning the piece, uh, I was scribbling down some notes and it dawned on me, frankly, that I'm not quite sure when we're supposed to say that the 55 years of hurt have ended? Have they ended now that England have reached a final or, or do they carry on ticking up if they lose? Because I think that there's no official consensus to that because it's been so long since they even made it past a semi. Would you would you say they're over or, or would you say if, uh, if England lose, then, then they continue? Indeed, does it even matter? Uh, it doesn't seem to matter that much anymore now that... Um... Gareth Southgate has kind of cut the past away, if you like. He started afresh. Lots of England managers have tried to do that, but he's actually succeeded. I think the fact that they reached a semi-final and a final consecutively, a World Cup semi-final in Russia and now a European Championship final uh, in this country, to me, that that already... It doesn't put to bed these this 55 years of underachievement, but it, but it means that you, they now have something to hang on to and to say um, that the, 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 the serious, serious underwhelming underachievement period is, is over. Because I think once you start getting to finals and semifinals consecutively, uh, you know, you're no longer the kind of sick man of world football anymore. You know, you're no longer uh, repeating uh, the cycle of everything going wrong and all the promise being shown to be false. Uh, there's no dispute that these players are an exceptional group of players. There's no dispute now that England are, a, are serious contenders in every tournament uh, they enter. And to me, at that moment of victory over Denmark um, was the moment when England could finally say, uh, you know, 1966 isn't going to be our only happy memory, our only 
our only kind of treasured experience and and that and that the the, the page has finally turned i think it would be uh, wrong of us not to spend a section of this talking about the uh, the manager Gareth Southgate and um, I think a lot of the England previously it was called the circus now I'll call it simply the entourage um, a lot of them when they're interviewed refer to him as being you know the catalyst for change and the reason why a lot of things have improved um, especially for those who, who have worked under previous managers in the England camp the um, the media communications team at the FA are, are a large uh, uh, sort of group of people who have been complimented in recent years for, for how they've changed perceptions of England and changed how it's worked. But, but even they, when, when they're interviewed, uh, refer back to Gareth Southgate, the work he did before becoming under 21 manager with the FA as under 21 manager, and especially in, uh, in, in his senior role as um, opening up to the media and how, how well that's, that's gone having all this these inside training videos and 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 removing the paparazzi and opening up to the fans which in turn brings in more tickets and then of course on the pitch you can't you know help but look at the results which have also been markedly better i th- i think a lot of it comes down to the to the man himself doesn't it yes it does i think when gareth southgate took over he had a very sophisticated understanding of what was going on in the england setup and in the england culture um, and he uh, recognised a number of obstacles to success. Um, the main one being a kind of fear and dread, a fatalism among the players sometimes, this sense that they were walking into something that simply wasn't going to be enjoyable and mm. was only going to end one way. And uh, Gareth Southgate understood that what you had to do is is is, is detach these, these good young players. And he knew the quality of them because he'd seen them come through the system, obviously, detach those players from the past and all the assumptions that were starting to go with playing for England. In other words, it's a kind of trail of tears. It's a mission of doom, you know, and um, an inquest waiting to happen, which is, is the classic phrase. Gareth Southgate didn't accept that it was always going to be that way. And he picked out a number of uh, ways in which he could change it. Um, first and foremost, to create a positive uh, winning environment in the squad um, to give them a, a structure, a tactical structure. I think crucially to um, instill possession football as the, as the religion. In many of the decades that, that you'll be looking at and we're talking about uh, English football, the way it was played was not conducive to success at international level, particularly 4-4-2, direct play, over-physical, over-power-based, not, te- not technical enough, particularly in summer heat when tournaments are played uh, and where if you're not if you haven't got the ball, you're making it hard for yourself. So uh, the religion of possession football, that big shift to possession football, and then the cultural work on removing the obstacles that some of them, some of them being psychological, but others being very real, such as poor relations with the press, um, you know, public scepticism, um, the sense that the players were uh, sort of beleaguered in a in a in a besieged. In a, in a camp, you know, with the outside world kind of gnawing away at them. Uh, Gareth Southgate's allowed us to uh, see the players as people. And more importantly than that, I think he's, he's, he's encouraged the players to be who they are, who they want to be, and to take responsibility for what they're doing. It's a kind of quite a player-led environment in many ways. You see, you see a number of senior players there 
sort of not running the show, but taking responsibility for things and saying, this team is saying to itself now, if we do the right things, if we follow the manager's lead and we do the things we need to do and stick together, uh, we can be successful. And, the, and when teams realize that they can be successful if they follow this path, it's a, it's a revelatory moment because then it becomes self-fulfilling and it develops momentum. What you mentioned there about Southgate realising that possession football is the way forward for England, moving away from uh, a slightly more physical style of play, which is you know seen around the world as being typically English. I think that's certainly part of it. And you just look at the England team now and how how polished technically a lot of these players are. Um, and, and we've you know we've we've moved mountains in the last in the last few decades. But also, in term, I want to talk about the England team in terms of people and individuals. Um, I don't think you could necessarily say that Bakayo Saka is, is the same, has the same personality as someone like Connor Cody, or that maybe Declan Rice has the same personality as Phil Foden. But they're all in their own way, very endearing, uh, and they seem like lovely people. Now, is that they don't seem to have this celebrity thing attached to them that maybe the golden generation did. Have we moved away from celebrity culture in society or are these just more a more likeable group of people, quite aside from, from their footballing ability? Well, I wouldn't want to kind of um, pass judgment on their likeability because I don't know them intimately enough to know, you know, what their real lives are like. All I can judge them by is, is what I see. Uh, and what I see is a generation of players who've, who've come through a system that's encourage them um, to certainly be professional, uh, to um, commit themselves and to, um, you know, dedicate themselves to what is a, a very grueling and sacrificial job these days because they are living a lifestyle on the whole that um, previous generations would have recoiled from. Uh, if, you, if you live now as a, as a Premier League footballer the way... England players of the, say, 70s and 80s would have done, you wouldn't be in the team for very long. You'd be out because you couldn't maintain the intensity and the work rate in the games, the pace of play that the top players are now expected to maintain. So they're living, they're living very different lives uh, to the lives of, of previous England players. But most of them seem to be making it work for them. And, uh, and they're certainly an admirable bunch. They, they, they you know, the, the kind of um, discouragement of, of ego and self-absorption would be part of what Gareth Southgate is trying to do because if he'd looked at past patterns where England teams hadn't been successful, possibly he would have come across examples of people living and playing in their own silos and not, uh, you know, committing to the... The, the, the sort of collective, that, that, that thing that Terry Venables talked about when he took over the Euro 96 team, when he said, um, when he got everybody in the room and said, look, you know, playing for England is difficult. It's, it's sometimes it's not much fun. You've got the press and the public on your back. Uh, it, it's, it's a struggle sometimes. And anyone who doesn't want to be part of it, uh, there's the door over there, you know, just leave now kind of thing. You, you have to commit or leave. And um, Gareth Southgate has persuaded these players to commit rather than leave. Well, and, and I think also he's helped to actually make it a much more fun environment, which, to be fair, I think 
Gareth Southgate was struck by himself when he was a player under Venables. I think he's been largely influenced by by how how well Venables did at finding the balance between being friendly with these players, but knowing that there's a the line to cross. And I think Southgate is, takes a lot of his inspiration as a leader from Venables himself. I want to speak as well about the 2018 World Cup. I mean, I was a, I was a fan of Roy Hodgson as manager, um, you know, prior to that. And ultimately it didn't go well for him in tournaments, I, but I thought he was, he was good for the England job. But looking at 2016 at the European Championships and 2018, there was a huge difference. England scored a lot of goals in, in Russia and they looked to be really enjoying it. Obviously, there was the whole Super Bowl um, press day, which um, I think the press couldn't believe their luck at uh, that, that moment when they were allowed in for that, um, <laughs> especially given what, uh, what had been before. But when you compare the 2018 World Cup in Russia to the Euros this year, and of course we've We've had two Nations League campaigns in the middle, but, you know, they come and go. We don't need to talk about them. But when you compare the 2018 to this, this summer, the one thing that I think is different, and I think most of it is quite parallel, is the fact that England seems savvier and more pragmatic. And, and they know now that it, it's like Steve Holland and Gareth Southgate and, and the rest of the staff have gone away and spent three long years working out what's the best key to success in tournaments. They had the team morale and things like that going for them and attacking quality and 3-5-2 and is a strange system, but it got the best out of those players in Russia. But now there seems to be a larger squad depth, but also an ability to be savvy and pragmatic and practical in the big moments. We saw it in different ways, but particularly in the last few minutes when England held the ball for three minutes and it's been going viral because that's a very un-English way to hold out a game, isn't it? Especially with the pressure, knowing that they were on their way to a first final for 55 years. Yeah, that's precisely true. I mean, the the history is going to be a bit kinder to Roy Hodgson's period, I think, 2012 to 2016, because he started a process that Gareth Southgate picked up on. The process was to uh, introduce younger players, um, a... a um, uh, more passing football. It, uh, he, he, Roy Hodgson didn't have the quality of player that uh, Gareth Southgate inherited, yeah. but there was a certain path of development that, that went horribly wrong, both in the 2014 World Cup and at Euro 2016. And then in 2018, I think Gareth Southgate um, produced what was a fairly attacking brand of play with two number eights and three at the back. And it was a style of play that he came up in within the build-up to that World Cup because he wasn't happy with the way England were playing. It was it was an, a gamble in a way or an experiment which which came off because it got England to the semi-final. But the, the, the depth of quality of the players he has at his disposal now is much, much higher than in 2018. And also the tactical system that he came up with for this tournament was unpopular with a lot of people, but um, has been completely vindicated. Uh, specifically, obviously, a lot of people felt that it was too defensive. They didn't like the two uh, so-called defensive midfield players, although I don't, I don't accept that they're defensive midfield players. If you watch Calvin Phillips when England are attacking, he's very, he's very often not far from the edge of the opposition's penalty area. Mm. Uh, and when he, when he gets the ball back, he, he plays incisive, constructive passes into the opposition's box. So Calvin Phillips is not David Batty and nor is Declan Rice. They're both very good footballers. But, you know, the, the, the upshot is that the back half of the team has been incredibly hard to score against. Defence was supposed to be England's weak point. Gareth Southgate cured 
that potential weakness before the tournament even started. Um, and then the question just became then how many how many attacking players do you play? How, when and who with do you do you attack the opposition? And the formula that he came up with was unpopular in the group stage with many fans, but has been shown to be highly effective, particularly given that he's got five or six players on the bench who can who can change a game at any moment. Um, let's uh, talk about the final in just a second, but I want to ask you a question which um, I haven't asked any other guests yet, but I'd be really intrigued to know the answer. We, we've had on people like John Murray and Henry Winter and um, Oliver Holt and John Cross, some real titans of, uh, of England, just like yourself. But I haven't asked... Uh, yeah, I hope you'll be willing to accept that title. <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, and uh, I haven't asked them this yet, but I'd like to know your thoughts. As a journalist, you know, obviously you're English and, and you've followed football for many years, as well as other sports, of course. Is it very is it difficult to get excited about about England at tournaments or is it perhaps difficult to, to get not excited about it? Is it difficult to rein it in at moments? Because, you know, you are there to do a job and and to be fair, to reflect the, the, the mood of the nation and the mood at the moment is pandemonium in a very good way. But equally to to be objective at moments and to to understand that there, that there are nuances to football matches and there are moments where England will will have made errors um, certainly down the years but but even now so so how difficult is that do you think? Well, I mean, I'm it's one of the things I'm quite um, pompous about. I'm pompous about lots of things, but but objectivity and neutrality in reporting on England is something I kind of. Um, value very highly. I don't go to a tournament seeing myself as an England fan. I go, I go as a reporter, mm -hmm. because the moment you become an England fan um, uh, and show it, then the fans of all the other countries are entitled to ask themselves, you know, well, why would I read that person's report if they're jumping around in the press box when England win? Uh, yeah. You can't be both. You can't be a you can't be a, a fan jumping around when England score in the press box and also be a neutral reporter. You know, you have to separate the two, I think. So uh, I, 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 my first tournament with England was 1996. And I've gone into all of them really trying to just, um, just report it as I go and, and, you know, try to assess each performance and each, and each cycle, each tournament cycle, each manager, you try and um, report and assess on those, assess those cycles as you would anything else really uh, in the in this current one uh, i think it's it's a lot easier to get drawn into what Gareth southgate is doing because there are ramifications beyond football quite apart from the football which is very impressive and these young players which to me are the best group of players since certainly since uh, the golden generation of 2002 to 2006, possibly, potentially the best generation of players England have, have ever had with respect to the 1966 team. Um, that in itself is, 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 is a good story, frankly, and a, and a great spectacle. But then, of course, you have these ramifications beyond football, which have taken the England team into a, into a, a wider cultural context. And those are also fascinating and it's interesting to see in this tournament so many people coming from outside football you know and and sort of weighing in with opinions on the on the cultural significance of the team and the social role of the players and um, taking stances and standing up for certain positions Gareth Southgate's kind of statesman-like role is very interesting and we've never we've never been here before we've never had an England setup 
that has these two functions, you know, um, serious football team trying to win a tournament, but also kind of uh, beacon on, um, on social issues. Last two questions then, and they're very much based uh, around the final, which is going to be an, an incredible spectacle for, you know, most people in this country and indeed um, around the world because it's such a, such a large event. Um, it seems to me that, that Italy are the, uh, are the neutrals' favourite going into this. I think largely because they've excited people with their football. They haven't been quite as um, practical, perhaps, as England. They haven't got as many clean sheets. That's certainly true. Um, but also England, I think, have been seen as, as being lucky beneficiaries in that semi-final of, of a couple of refereeing decisions. I understand it. Um, certainly the penalty wasn't a clear-cut penalty, whether you agree with it or not. It wasn't, it wasn't a clear penalty. Um, you know, are Italy favourites going into the final? Because, because England, have got, of course, have got home advantage and we've seen that Wembley's been absolutely bouncing in this tournament, especially in the latter stages. So... So England have got that and they've got the better defensive record, but Italy are unbeaten in uh, 33, 34 games and um, go in with, with a manager quite similar to Gareth Southgate in Roberto Mancini. Do, do you think they're the favourites? I did before the Denmark game. Uh, I, I thought Italy would be favourites out of respect, really, for their uh, tournament record, their pedigree, Mancini's management, the incredible intensity and work rate of those players. They're a very dangerous side, mm -hmm. uh, very smart side as well. But then the Denmark game just pushed me back towards a middle position and a position of almost thinking England are favourites, specifically because of the way England fought back from going behind. Also, the way they kept the ball, the way they came through adversity, um, the sheer weight of, of, of talent that they're able to bring onto the pitch uh, to refresh the side, you know, in extra time, for example, uh, the extra resources they have. I mean, they've definitely got the deepest squad in this, in this championship. There's no question about that. They've got, you know, to borrow that rugby phrase, they've got starters and finishers, really. Mm. And, um, but on top of that, they, they now have, these players have the ability to problem solve and control a game and control the ball, which, which was really one of the huge failings of previous England teams, that other teams would, would keep the ball, control the game, uh, and England teams wouldn't know how to cope with that, you know. And they'd give the ball away and they'd chase it back, they wouldn't get it, and they'd suddenly... A bit like even in the second half of the Croatia game, the semi-final in Russia, Croatia controlled the second half. And there you saw an England team that wasn't ready to, to do what this England can, team can do, which is to say, no, hang on, you may have your 10 minutes where you give us plenty of problems, but we'll get control of the game again. We'll run this game. And that's what they did for the most part against Denmark. So I watched that performance thinking, actually, uh, they've got, they've got, never mind worrying about what Italy have got. Um, Italy would have been watching that game thinking that England, for all those reasons, are going to be a real handful. Yeah, absolutely. I think they will. It's going to be a very tight game either way. Um, final question then, um, and it's very philosophical, but we uh, I make no apologies for it because we like it, uh, sort of self-indulging with England. Um, you know, how much does how much does England matter? Because no one watches qualifiers against San Marino or friendlies against uh, Hungary. I, I do, but but people don't tend to. Um, and then at moments like this, people who, you know, it doesn't look like they've ever kicked a football before come together and enjoy, you know, what's a, what is a fantastic celebration in a way that I don't even think Olympic Games can, can manage to do or, or royal weddings. We, we won't get into the royal debate. But, um, yeah, why does England matter so much? 
It's a really good question because, um, you know, 25 million people watched that semi-final against Croatia in Russia. Only international football can do that. Uh, England or Scotland or Wales in, the, in those countries, in our country, England is the only thing that can get the whole country to the television screen to share in that experience. And yet they operate in a world where, let's face it, Premier League football and Champions League football have knocked international football aside. In our country particularly, uh, international football, England have very much played a a, a backup role, a secondary role uh, to club football, which is enormous and consuming. And, you know, to the point where people complain when there's an international break because it's an interruption to the Premier League programme and they say, God, it's boring, you know, England are playing Austria or, or, you know, or Lithuania or someone. I just want to watch Man City against Liverpool. So England, between tournaments, have had to fight for attention, have had to fight for their their place on the, on the modern menu of kind of football obsession. But when a tournament comes around and England start doing well, all that goes out of the window. The Premier League and the Champions League, forget about them. You know, this is the country's team. Uh, progressing through a tournament, and and it and it reawakens that kind of latent desire um, to see a collective success, a success that everybody can share in, and not just fans of Man City or fans of Chelsea. Yeah. And as I always say about international football, it, it belongs to everybody. The national team belongs to everybody. They, no, but you don't have to. You don't have to buy a share. Um, you, they can't take it away from you. Yeah. It's yours. It's public property. England are public property in a way that so few things are nowadays. So that when they start doing well, people feel part of it. They feel it's it's part of their lives and part of their country. And there's a tremendous communion and bond between populations and successful national teams. Unsuccessful national teams face a different problem altogether, as we've seen for the last 55 years. Hmm. Well, I don't think we could have uh, concluded this in a more fitting way if we'd engineered it. So, um, Paul Haywood, thank you very much for joining me today. Great to hear from Paul Haywood there. Return to England Unmasked following the final, where we'll be looking back on the most momentous of days. And Luke will be back. From me, Dom Smith, it's goodbye. Goodbye.